From the stables in Milton Keynes, home to world-class music, entertainment, if Milton Keynes International Festival, and a whole lot more besides. This is Turn Up The Volume with your host, Nick Coffer. Welcome to the latest episode of Turn Up The Volume from the stables in Milton Keynes, featuring a deeply personal, intimate interview with one of the great voices of music. Music Land was Skyperless, and Alton was working there, and I took some copies of the magazine in uh, time out when we started publishing it and offered it to him on sale or return and he said yes I'll um, stock a few copies if you promise to review my new album in your next edition and that's what we did. Yes Bob Harris will be appearing at the stables in August alongside his friend Martin Joseph talks about an incredible public life of music and artists and also shares the tough personal lows too not least a recent near-death experience with an aortic dissection. Bob's a great storyteller. We'll hear about Terry Wogan, John Peel, Mark Bolan, Elton John, David Bowie, Mick Ronson, The Kinks, Bruce Springsteen, and even Sir Alex Ferguson. It's a real sit back and enjoy listen, which I hope you'll love. And one artist Bob has championed in the past is the wonderful Sean Colvin. She speaks to me from her home in Austin ahead of her upcoming appearance at the Stables, talking about her three decades and more of creating music, touring her incredible live performances, We'll hear about her battle with depression, what drives her to perform, and we've got a big reveal about her best-known song. Sunny Came Home is fiction, completely made up. If you look at the cover of that album, A Few Small Repairs, there's a painting yeah. of a woman. And I chose that painting before Sunny Came Home was even written, and I was stumped trying to, find, trying to write the lyric for Sunny Came Home. So I took a look at the painting, and I've never really done this before, and I went... Why don't you write about the woman in the painting? It's a perfect episode to open a beer for and chill in the summer sunshine too, notwithstanding that it's cold, grey and rainy outside my July window right now. Whatever the weather, so much for you to listen to and enjoy in this latest episode of Turn Up The Volume from the Stables in Milton Keynes. Great local venue, small, perfectly formed, great atmosphere. There's something really different and it's really local. It's just such a cosy, intimate environment. I get to see bands that I first saw 50 years ago. Great eclectic mix of music and a really lovely community. July is such a busy month for the Stables. If Milton Keynes International Festival, of course, are curated by the Stables, is running as we speak at the time of this recording. And it's been an amazing success so far. An incredible mix of arts and culture and community. But now's a good moment to look ahead to things calming down a little and to the stables itself taking centre stage again. So let's hear from Bob Harris. Now, I first heard Bob when I was a 13-year-old boy and he took over the late-night weekend show on the then-London-only LBC. He, alongside Dan Damon and Adrian Love, cemented my love of the intimacy of radio. And it's a listening relationship that I've maintained for the best part of 40 years. It was therefore such a pleasure to get the chance to chat to him from his home in Oxfordshire ahead of his appearance at the stables with Martin Joseph. Now, as I said during my introduction, we covered so much in this conversation, so many stories about so many great artists. Coming up, we'll hear about his friendships with the likes of David Bowie, Elton John, Mark Bolan. But first, let's go back to the 1950s. I put it to Bob that it was in the late 50s that he first discovered the music he loves when getting his own first taste of music radio when listening to Radio Caroline. Absolutely. And uh, even before that, because my mum loved the radio so much. We had a big old radiogram in the corner of our sitting room at home. And um, I was that boy that was listening to listen with mother, with his mother, you know, when I was like three, four, five years old. And um, so my mom used to love the radio going all day. She used to have the light program on. We'd have 
Mantovani playing in the background or one or other of the crooners in those days, David Whitfield or Ronnie Hilton. She loved all that music. So although obviously I didn't snap into music that I loved until rock and roll came along, the idea of the radio being there and um, being part of the fabric of a day or one's life in the wider sense imprinted on me right from when I was, you know, a, a little boy. So when rock and roll came along, obviously you go to the radio to find it. And although there weren't many places to find it at that time, uh, Radio Luxembourg obviously was, was the main thing. Of the, the, the reception was absolutely horrendous, as we know. It used to phase in and out. And uh, but I remember listening to Be My Girl by Jim Dale or Diana by Paul Anker or Elvis or Ricky Nelson or the Everly Brothers or Buddy Holly and uh, Chuck Berry and all of those great artists. Occasionally, there was a decker. The record labels tended to buy space on the station. So you get half an hour of the new decker releases or whatever. And it was Decker that I loved because they had all the great labels, London, American, RCA, Coral, Brunswick. Um, so that's where my relationship with the radio began. I wonder what it was like because, look, you and I, we both love new music. But when we hear new music today, we can hear its heritage. We're used to discovering new things. But in the 50s, it was such uncharted territory, late 50s. It must have been exciting and mind-blowing in equal measures for, for the young Bob. We'd never heard, no one had ever heard anything like it before, literally. I mean, when you think about Heartbreak Hotel or anything by Jerry Lee Lewis, Whole Lot of Shaking, Great Balls of Fire, I mean, the energy and the, the, the kind of danger of that sort of music at that time was just completely mind-blowing. It was um, also a time when, you know, previously you look at any old photos of any family even in the early 50s, I mean, it's a very good opportunity to do a parallel here with um, Mendips because I remember visiting Mendips for the first time in 2005. This is John Lennon's childhood home where he was living with his auntie Mimi. And so uh, between them, Yoko Ono and the National Trust, who sort of co-owned the property, have restored it to the way it was when John was living there in the 50s. And so you're stepping back into a time capsule. And for me, it was like stepping back into my childhood. And you look around at the photographs uh, of any family in those days, and the younger people of the family looked exactly like mini versions of the older people in the family. And the older people in the family, even 30 and 40-year-olds, seemed to look like their elders who were 60 and 70. Everybody looked exactly the same. And um, so, but suddenly, there we were in 56, 7, 8, and uh, what had now uh, become known as teenagers <laughs> would be getting to establish their own fashion, their own music, and nobody had ever seen anything like that before. I wanted to be, it's funny because it's hard to say I wanted to be a DJ, but kind of like when you look at it, that actually was my ambition even then, because I got so much pleasure from playing music to other people and seeing the expression on their faces, that it, it, you can honestly draw a direct line from the little cellar at my mum and dad's house at Ardington Road in Northampton when I was 13 years old in 1959 playing the new Buddy Holly single to my friends on my dad's record player 
to what I'm doing now. It's just obviously now I've got a bit of a bigger audience, but the idea of it is exactly the same, that I'm playing music I love to people and hope that they love it the same way that I do. I mean, my dad was really good because he was a policeman. He was very keen for me to follow in his footsteps. I'm an only child. Um, the, the, the family was quite patriarchal. And, um, you know, I think he just wanted the best for me. He saw, um, he had a, he visualized me age 49, being able to retire with a good old pension, maybe having spent quite a gentle time in, on some village beat. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I really get it. And I followed his footsteps into the police cadets for 18 months. And it was the period of my life, looking back on it now, that I really enjoyed. I was uh, playing a lot of sport in those days, rugby union in particular. And if you showed an aptitude for rugger in those days or any sport, really, in the services, you got a huge amount of time off to practice, to go to training sessions, to travel for matches and everything else. And I found myself playing for the Midland Counties when I was only 17 and a half against really big lads, you know, big, big men, a hell of a lot bigger than I was. Um, and in fact, what one of the most exciting and still to this day, memorable moments in my life was when I got chosen for the Midland Counties team. I went to a trial in Birmingham. My dad was on the touchline. Oh, I was the center three quarter. Miraculously, I made a break that led to a try that led to me being chosen for the team. And I remember seeing my dad on the touchline. I've never been as, I've never been as nervous before an event ever. And I've never been as nervous since as I was that day. But I used to love it I, once I settled into it. But obviously, the, you know, the police life wasn't for me. So when I was 19 years old, we'd, we'd shaken hands with me and my dad to say, right, if I give it everything while I'm in the cadets, and then when I come to my 19th birthday, if I choose to not go on, into the police force, he would back me uh, in anything, you know, in, in the direction I decided to take. And that's how it was. And I moved to London, um, met John Peel, crucially, quite early on. And he helped guide me towards Radio One, basically. I met Jeff Griffin, great producer at the time. Jeff and I did a pilot together, and that opened up the pathway onto Radio One. My dad came up to my, I think it was the second program I ever did. And uh, it was, I, I was taking over in the studio at that time from Terry Wogan, who was doing the three till five show. And I, I was on Sounds of the 70s, which started at six. So my dad got to meet Terry Wogan. And uh, it was a lovely thing. I mean, they were chatting in the studio while I was setting up. And my dad said to Terry Wogan, was asking him about the security because my dad was all about security, you know, the security of the job, how long has it, could you expect this career to last? And Terry Wogan said, well, put it this way, I'm on a 13-week contract. So that's the extent of my security, you know. But about four years later, um, I'd invited my dad to meet me at the BBC and he was waiting for me in reception. And Terry Wogan came down the stairs into main reception and broadcasting house. And my dad was sitting way across the other side and saw Terry walking across reception and my my dad saw Terry Wogan throw a glance in his direction and immediately stopped and strode over and said, Mr. Harris, how wonderful to see you. And my dad was so thrilled because he couldn't believe four years later, just having met him that one time, Terry Wogan remembered him, said, oh, isn't your son doing well? Because my dad always used to call me Rob. 
you know, I was in Rob doing great now. And because uh, I, by this time, started on Whistle Test. And it was just a fabulous moment. My dad, my dad never forgot it. I feel like we missed a, a part of the John Peel story, which leads on to all manner of other stories. You and John Peel weren't alone in that room on that first interview, were you? No, I'd, I'd been doing a bit of freelance writing when I first went up to London. And I met Tony Elliott, um, who was the editor of Unit magazine at the time, which was the magazine of the University of Kiel. And um, he was looking for kind of London correspondent, really. This is 66, well, it was 1967, actually. When you think how that monochrome world of the 50s had now exploded into psychedelic colour, London was an amazing place to be. And uh, I was very fortunate. I, I was living in a bedsit in Hampstead, in a house populated by students from the Central School of Art and London School, School of Economics and um, photographers, writers, artists. It was an incredible creative environment to land into. And um, yeah, and Tony Elliott visited one day and said he was looking for somebody to do some writing in London. Would I, I mean, I put myself forward really. And uh, I wrote a piece about a mixed media group called the Exploding Galaxy uh, in the summer of 67. And um, he loved it. He thought the piece was great. So he said, what would you like to do now? And I said, I'd like to interview John Peel because I'd obviously by now I'd heard John's Perfume Garden radio show. And I, I just thought, this is where I want to be. This is what I want to do. John, if I could have just pressed a button and been John at that moment, that's what I would have done out there on the North Sea, Radio London, you know, beaming this incredible music back to the UK. Um, he'd not long back, been back from America, so he had a lot of the American vinyl that he brought back with him, Quicksilver Messenger Service and Jefferson Airplane, Country Joe and the Fish, Steve Miller Band, you know, Janis Joplin. These are names, Doors, Love, Incredible string band, well, incredible string band from the UK. But I mean, these were these were names that you'd never heard on radio before. I was absolutely captivated. So I wanted to meet John, and Tony organised it. So I went over to John's house in Fulham, as was then, and uh, Mark Boland was there. I met them both on the same day, and Mark was sitting on the floor, cross-legged, playing his acoustic guitar with his corkscrew hair, and yeah, and I became really good friends with both of them. And then we look at some of those names, some of those friendships from that time. There was Elton John too, uh, who you met through uh, your work at Time Out. Am I right in saying that the deal was that if he put your magazine into his store, you'd push his record? Yeah, that's exactly right. He was working behind the counter at Musicland um, Records in Berwick Street, which is still my favourite ever. Well, I was going to say my favourite ever record shop, but it was probably my second favourite ever record shop. My favourite record shop was John Levers in Northampton where I used to buy all those singles that, that I was talking about earlier. But Musicland was fabulous. And Alton was working there, and I took some copies of the magazine in, uh, Time Out, when we started publishing it, and offered it to him on sale or return. And he said, yes, I'll, um, I'll, I'll stock a few copies if you promise to review my new album in your next edition. And that's what we did. It's hard though, isn't it, for, you know, you look at these friendships that are founded, particularly in the early days of people's careers, it's hard for these friendships to persist, especially once the artists go stratospheric. I mean, with someone like David Bowie, was it just a case of, I don't know, shrugging your shoulders or, or did it really hurt when, when you two drifted apart? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I see it happen now. Um, obviously, with some of the country artists that I've been championing during the last 10 years, and they go stratospheric and you just simply begin to lose touch. And it's no one's fault, but it kind of happens. 
So when it doesn't happen and that artist, despite their unbelievable schedule, maintains contact with you, then that's actually really, and this has happened, say, with Casey Musgraves, you know, Casey's first ever radio show or radio session was on my country show. And we, we got very close, Casey and I. And then with the Golden Hour album, she went absolutely stratospheric. And she went through a difficult marriage and a marriage breakup and everything else. And for a while, uh, I thought, well, she's, uh, there she is. She's orbiting somewhere, <laughs> you know, eight miles high. And uh, that, but then she got back in touch with me. Out of the blue, I got a, a text from her saying that, I'd, I'd recorded a voice message for her answer machine and she said she changed her phone and she'd lost the message. And would I do another one? And it's, it's brought us back together again. And um, I'm really pleased. I'm really thrilled. With, it was funny with David in particular. I mean, David did move on. Um, and when he did, when he made that step, he left behind everything that was, you know, one day you're on the phone to him a couple of times a day and the next day, he doesn't even recognize your name. I mean, with David in particular, that was, that was a very specific line. And there were a few casualties of that, I think. I mean, I always talk about Mick Ronson in very defensive terms because I think Mick felt very let down that David had moved on from him so suddenly and so comprehensively. And um, Mick was so much of the reason that David got as big as he did because the sound of Siggy Stardust the sound of the Transformer up by Lou Reed. That, 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 that was Mick Ronson. <laughs> and, um, and that moment when they were on Top of the Pops together and uh, David put his arm around Mick's shoulders when they were doing Starman, that, that, was a, a, that was a light bulb moment for a lot of people. And uh, Mick was right by David's side. And it was extremely unfortunate, I think, that David moved on from Mick the way that he did. And it hurt Mick very badly, really did. We have to talk about the old grey whistle test. Yeah, it's funny because when I prepare to talk to a guest, I have a little trick where I do a Google search uh, for old interviews that that guest might have actually taken part in. It's a great way of getting lots of information about that person. However, with you, Bob, there's a massive problem, a really, really massive problem. Because if I Google Bob Harris interview, there are pages and pages and pages of music royalty who've been interviewed by you. It's an incredible list, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... Even now, I think how incredible it was to have been that guy. Do you know what I mean? That, that, that did that stuff. Um, I mean, even this last weekend when the Kinks concert was on TV and I, I wasn't watching BBC Two. I was, uh, I can't remember, I think I was probably over here in the studio and I suddenly started getting texts and screenshots from people who were sending me pictures of that they'd taken off their, their TV of me introducing the band in my old cardigan and, uh, you know, moments I, I, I almost hardly remember now, some of them anyway. I mean, so much of that time was so vivid still in my memory. But um, looking back, I mean, 1973, so I've been doing the program already by this time for about a year, 50 years ago. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's ridiculous to think of it like that. And I sometimes wonder where my life would be now had it not been for that call that I got from Mike Appleton in the days when the BBC was so free for, and he just called me up and said, would I like to do the show? And I'd been watching the first series uh, and loving it. 
and seeing all my favorite bands on there. And I, I'd, I've been on Radio One now for a couple of years. I never ever had any ambition towards being on TV, but suddenly Mike phoned up and said, would I like to do the show? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'd love to. So then for probably a couple of years, you saw me learning how to do the job <laughs> in front of X number of million people. I'm literally doing all I can to not ask who you loved interviewing, because I suspect you've been asked that a million times. But let me put it this way. Were you ever in awe? Did you ever have a guest who you adored, idolised even? Did you ever sit there and think, wow, I'm, I'm sitting next to... I think Bruce Springsteen, when we were backstage at New Haven in 78, I mean, I think you, it's on YouTube. And I think you get the sense that I'm sitting there with my mouth open, just, just going, I'm with Bruce, Bruce Springsteen. I can't believe it, you know. Um, but no, actually, funnily enough, not rock and roll people so much. Um, sports people, yes, sometimes. I remember meeting David Gower for the first time and being absolutely speechless. I, you know, really kind of to the extent of almost making a fool of myself. I was so in, in, in awe of him. Um, so sports people, yes. And if you put me, I mean, it's funny because one of my big heroes over probably the last 20, 30 years has been Sir Alex Ferguson. And, um, he and I have never met, but we've established now a really lovely sort of long distance friendship through his son, Jason. And when I did my 70th birthday program on Radio 2, there were lots of messages, you know, cause people like Brian May and Robert Plant and people who've been in my life since those early days, it was the test Alton and people like that. Um, but everybody was saying to leave this particular message till the end. And I had no idea it was going to be, I was speculating at certain points in the show, who could this possibly be? And finally I pressed the button that right towards the end of the show. And I heard this voice go, Bob, Alec Ferguson. And I thought for a split second, it was Rob Bryden because <laughs> Rob and I know each other quite well. And, uh, and then I realized it was Sir Alex and uh, he was saying 70 years old. And apparently he'd heard that it was my 70th and he had instigated himself sending me this message. I had absolutely no idea he would even know, had the faintest clue who I was. So when it came to his 80th, I was able to get in touch with his son, Jason, and say, you know, I'd love to send Sir Alex. And I began my message to him. Uh, Sir Alec, Bob Harris, you know, in exactly the same as it. Uh, and he loved it. He sent me a, a note to say how much he appreciated it. So I did a little piece where I did a um, Great Lives show recently on uh, Samat Busby. And I got in touch with Sir Alec to, to say that I was doing it and would he like it. And he sent the most incredible three minutes of, of audio. I mean, the production team just could not believe that he'd taken the trouble to do it, but he did. So... You know, I, I, I'm in awe of Sir Alex Ferguson and were we to actually meet face to face, I think at that moment I'd struggle. But I've never had that problem with any of the rock stars ever. Great stories from Bob. Go to stables.com for more information about his show in August and indeed all the other great things coming up at the Stables in the next few weeks. We'll hear more from Bob shortly as he talks intimately about marriage breakups and health issues which could well have ended fatally for him. We'll also hear about his passion for country music as he draws a line right through music history from the early 70s to the music he loves today. But first, Sean Colvin. Before you knew me, an angel came to me, I wrestled in down to the ground. 
Instantly recognisable voice of Sean Colvin, a voice which has sung of joy, pain, heartbreak, love and loss for nearly 40 years now. Winning multiple Grammy Awards in her 30s, this was no overnight success, with Sean having very much paid her dues in her 20s. She's coming to the stables in September, and I spoke to her from her home in Austin about the highs and the lows, her successes and her challenges, and why Sunny Came Home may not be as true as we all thought it to be. We started by talking a little about the New York scene she was very much part of in her 20s and something I only recently discovered. Sean sung backing vocals on Suzanne Vega's Luca, a connection which led to her getting her first record deal. Suzanne and I were in a a scene together, a a songwriter's kind of collective from a club called The Speakeasy in New York City. And so we, we were friends and she did ask me to come sing on Luca before anybody knew, obviously what a smash it was going to be. And her uh, managers became interested in me. They knew I was doing my own thing. And um, I went on tour with her, actually. And when I got back, they asked if I would uh, join their management firm, if I would sign with them. And then they uh, they went to Columbia Records with my demo tape and I got signed. And the rest is history. And speaking of artists I love, I know that you played in a band with a musician I I really, really respect, Susie Tyrell, who's uh, these days seen bossing it alongside the boss himself, Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, I met Susie in 1980 when I first moved to New York City. And we were all, uh, Susie and another woman named uh, Lisa Lowell, who I think also tours with Bruce sometimes, a woman named Elaine Caswell, Patty Scalfa, actually, Bruce's wife. We were all part of this rough and tumble bunch of musicians including a lot of guys and players and that just played clubs whenever we could um and i was in Susie's band Susie would sometimes be in my band and and so on and so forth so i've known Susie forever yeah did it include the boss himself did he come and play with you oh no 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 he he was not struggling like we were he <laughs> patty met him later because they were both from jersey and she met him at the stone pony cuz she used to hang out there too and they happened to meet and uh, that's how that happened. That was, I don't know when that was, around the Border Run record, I think. Yeah. And, and they got together sort of mid-80s, isn't they, a little while later. Yeah. Your success, the success that we, the, the wider public associate with you, came late, or at least later for you. I wonder whether the, the Sean of her early 20s could have coped with winning Grammys in the same way that you won them in your 30s. That's hard to say. Um, it's hard to say, kind of impossible to say, really, because the when I was in my early 20s, I wasn't writing songs. Um, so, and I didn't really want to make an album, which was, of course, my life's dream, but I wanted to be the songwriter. And I just was very uh, reticent, shy, uh, ill-confident person when it came to writing songs, which obviously I uh, I got over, but that didn't happen until my later 20s. So I, I just don't think the whole thing would have happened at all, honestly. How did you get over that? How did you cross that step into having the confidence to to be exposed, to be vulnerable, to to write your own music and put it out there? Well, I'll tell you, I had been playing the clubs in New York and and other 
towns I'd lived in prior to New York in 1980. And I was doing cover songs and singing in different people's bands and uh, wanted to write songs, but, you know, just didn't. And um, I did meet John Leventhal. We started writing some pop songs together, nothing that we ended up recording later. And at some point, I just decided that maybe I wouldn't do music anymore because it was getting to feel a little empty for me. And I was a good copycat, and but I, it was kind of it became unfulfilling to some extent. So I took a year off and, uh, you know, and I was kind of okay with it. I thought, well, if I don't do it anymore, I don't do it anymore. You know, it's not the bulk of who I am. It's not the totality of who I am. And then about a year later, I thought, but you were good at it. <laughs> you know, like, you know, maybe you should give it a shot, but you got to write songs. And if you're going to write songs, you've got to kind of follow in the footsteps of your heroes. You've got to be a solo performer and play your acoustic guitar like you do. And you do that well play and sing alone and you need to write kind of personal personal tunes you know stuff that's about what you feel and who you are and what you've done and uh i wrote a song called diamond in the rough then with john leventhal and uh, he wrote the music i wrote the words and i thought well this is a good start and that's that's the story and that's how it started i've read you repeat the old saying that you've got a, a lifetime of experiences to fall back on for a first album and then of course that pool gets ever smaller as you continue to write. And it's a bittersweet relationship, isn't it, between songwriting and life experience. Never better summed up than in the final verse of your song, Monopoly, which I'm going to very poorly read out here. I'm not going to do any justice, but you wrote, uh, when people say, well, you know, you got a song out of it, but I don't know what else to do. I'd rather be anywhere than here without you. Talk me through that that love-hate relationship between your life experience that you get to write about and sing about but of course, in part, which you wish you didn't have, and therefore you wouldn't be able to write and sing about it. You know, it's not a matter of wishing I didn't have those experiences. We all do. And really being able to write about him is a blessing. In that case, yeah, it pissed me off that I was feeling heartbroken and didn't know what else to do. So I was a bit bitter about it. But the truth is that in rough moments and Certainly all the songs aren't about rough moments or they're about somebody else's rough moments, you know, or making up somebody's rough moments, but, or they're about nice moments, but certainly being able to, to go to a creative outlet, you know, like singing and songwriting is a balm for that, for that kind of thing. It's really a great outlet. So uh, I don't, I don't uh, disparage it every time. Let's put it that way. And that leads me to think about the, this uh, eternal interaction between songwriting performance and of course, the things that life throws at us, notably our battles with perhaps with mental health. And I wonder whether the former improves the latter or whether the latter informs the former or whether actually both sometimes they clash to the degree that nothing actually functions. It's quite a symbiotic relationship, isn't it? It depends on what kind of mental health we're talking about. Um, if you're talking about depression, um, or what have you, you know, the chemicals in your brain not functioning, whatever you know, uh, diagnosis you might have. For me, it's, uh, it was depression. And uh, when that happens, you really, how do I put it? There's no shaking at all. Um, I mean, I needed um, pharmaceutical intervention, you know, um, to lift me out of my clinical depression. Um, so in my experience, if you're just talking about something like that, uh, clinically diagnosed m mental illness, nothing's happening. I mean, I couldn't write. I couldn't, well, I would perform if I had to, but it was a very unpleasant experience. Uh, when you're just troubled or upset, 
or if you're mentally off and you want to express your feelings and you're capable of doing that because you're not in the throes of a, you know, physical mental illness, then yeah, then it can be helpful, you know, some pain <laughs> and, uh, but also wonder and amazement and love. You know, it's, it's not all the uh, bloodletting every time of, of sorrow. And of course, the beauty of songwriting, we talk about journey with regards to managing difficult emotional feelings and mental health. Songwriting is basically a 30, 40 year long journal, isn't it? You've got an incredible record. Well, is it a 30 or 40 year long journal? I guess if you look at it in terms of every song being a page out, you know, confessional page out of a journal, yeah. Uh, but there are exceptions. Like Sunny Came Home is fiction, completely made up. If you look at the cover of that album, A Few Small Repairs, there's a painting yeah. of a woman. And it's done by a friend of mine named Julie Speed. She had a lot of paintings and I wanted one of them. And that's the one I chose. And I chose that painting before Sunny Came Home was even written. And I was stumped trying to find, trying to write the lyrics for Sunny Came Home. So I took a look at the painting and I've never really done this before. And I went, why don't you write about the woman in the painting? I said to myself, and she's holding a lit mat, the woman in the painting. And then in the far background um, is what appears to be a very large fire. So I just started to write about her and uh, some words started coming to me. And I basically made up a story about the woman who lights this fire and her name is Sunny and we don't really know what she said fire to or why. But the rest of the album is is based on an element of truth, isn't it? It's an album about divorce. Uh, to an extent. I mean, yeah, there's some of that in there. But again, I took license. I, I learned to do that as time went on. Things weren't so completely personal. I would kind of make things up as I, you know, or, or alter them. And for example, there's a song called Get Out of This House, which everybody thinks is just this vengeful divorce song <laughs> and the truth is and i won't go far far into it but I, yes i i was going through a divorce right around that time but i also had bought my first home i purchased a house and i had i was sitting in the writer's room of that house which was terrible pressure i thought what have i done and i'm looking out at the lake that i have a view of that i thought was so incredible and and i felt pressure to be inspired. And I thought, what have I done? And I looked at a hill that went up the road and I thought you should be out riding your bike. And I felt guilty. And I was like, I had total buyer's remorse. And I thought, why did I leave New York? So I just started writing, get out of this house, but I made it, you know, nasty about a person. So, you know, my poor ex-husband, who's a total sweetheart, forgave me that, you know, he knows people think it's about him and we just laugh about it. So there's the truth behind a lot of songs. You kind of make up some and draw from some real experiences too. And of course, as the listener, we make up our own versions in our head. We, we hear a song and we, we try and create our own fantasy, our own, uh, we transfer our own feelings, our own experiences onto a song. And that's why music is so beautiful and, and so powerful. Uh, just as a thought when, when talking about songs being true, untrue, semi-true, uh, intimate and not, are there any that you're unable to perform? Are there any that are just too close to the bone that you, you find yourself saying, no, I, I can't do that? No, I can do all of them. There's a lot of them now, and some of them I, um, are old enough that I just kind of feel like I've outgrown them maybe, but um, no, there are none that I can't do. And here you are still on the road, still touring almost nonstop. You're coming to the stables just after the summer in September. 
why can you just not stop telling these stories, singing these songs? What is it in you that keeps you coming back to us? Well, I could stop if I wanted to, but I like working. Um, I like singing. I like my job. Um, and uh, I, mean, I think you'll notice with a lot of artists that certainly are financially set up to just never have to go tour again. They tour. <laughs> I mean, you can count you you can count them. There's a lot of them. It just gets in your blood. You want to play for people. That's kind of you know, with all this AI stuff going on, it occurs to me that you know, playing live music or or live theater or you know, that's going to be the last bastion. You know, if you look at it really bleakly. So playing for an audience is magic. You're really in the essence of what you do. You're not going to be able to repeat it, re-record it, overdub it. You know, you just you just got to deliver. And it's a great, great feeling to do it right. And yet you look at Abba Voyage, it's entirely uh, AI. I wonder whether in 10, 15 years time we'll be going to watch an AI version of Sean Colvin. Well, you can watch it on film, but you can't watch it on stage. And I travel So if you want to see the real Sean Colvin at the stables, you can do so on Monday, the 18th of September. Tickets are £33.50. More info to be found at stables.org. And for more on Sean herself, head to seancolvin.com or Sean underscore Colvin on Twitter and Facebook. This is Turn Up the Volume from the stables in Milton Keynes, and it's time to pick up again with Bob Harris. We've heard about the early days of his career in Swinging London, his friendships, his time on the old grey whistle test and on our radios. But Bob has also faced significant challenges. Leading the life of a rock and roll star when hosting the Old Grey Whistle Test led to complete burnout. And as with all media careers, his star has had periods where it's shone less brightly. Perhaps his biggest challenge has been his health, which in recent years has posed him a lot of problems. I suffered from prostate cancer. I was diagnosed with prostate cancer in 2007. And, and thanks to the miracles of medical advancement, I'm still here because the the treatment has kept up with the 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 spread of the cancer in my body, as it were. So I've got you know I've got cancer in my bones, and uh, but I'm in remission, which is vitally important as as the rider to what I've just said. Um, and I had a a dissection in a aortic dissection in 2019, which was incredibly difficult. Uh, it was the, probably the worst single experience of my entire life. I'm very, very lucky to have survived it. 
So I've been putting back into, I'm, I'm an ambassador for the Aortic Dissection Charitable Trust, ADCT. And we're doing a lot of good work in terms of educating people about this condition because it's not that well known. People, people talk about it as being a heart issue and it isn't. The aorta is the, the main artery that comes out of the heart and feeds blood to the rest of the body. I think of it as being the M1 of the body. really. And if you get a big tear in it, which is what happened to me, then the consequences can be unbelievably difficult. And instant. And instant. And the survival rate is not fabulous. But I'm, I managed to come through it um, incredibly. So I'm, there are four of us that are part of ADCT. And we spend quite a lot of time. I spend quite a lot of time in the House of Commons uh, because one of our committee members is Pauline Latham, MP. And her son died of a misdiagnosed uh, dissection. So, uh, you know, that's, that's become a very, very big part of my life. My, I've, I've, I've been through marriage breakups. Uh, in fact, my most recent marriage breakup happened in the middle of my recovery because my wife then, Trudy, just felt overwhelmed by the idea that she was going to have to deal with this for the rest of my life. And she just decided she didn't want to. So that was, that was an incredibly difficult moment. And then just as I was really getting back up onto my feet, um, we, we got COVID. So suddenly I found myself here at the house without any income, uh, and by myself. Well, I mean, I've got my two cats. So that period of time was really, really difficult. You'd say really from probably the beginning of 2018, when my marriage had begun to break up to when I was able to start to get on the stages and work properly again. You know, I was doing, thank goodness, Radio 2 supported me throughout that time. And um, there was a big turning point moment that, uh, so I had my dissection in May 2019, and I was off from Radio 2 for the next few months. And we set my return date as the 15th of September, because that was the day of the festival in Hyde Park that year. And Radio 2 had asked me to introduce Kelsey Ballerini on stage. Now, I'd done a couple of very tentative little gigs to just see if I could hope and how physically I'd, I'd lost a lot of weight and all of that. Um, and I thought, right, I'm, I'm going to do this. I thought, I'm not sure if I can, what the day's going to bring. But I thought, I'd, you know, I'd become so frightened by the impact of my dissection. You talk to anybody who's had one and that, and that horror fear is the big factor that you, almost more than the physical impact, the psychological impact is absolutely huge because you're frightened almost to do anything, to climb a flight of stairs. You wonder what the hell is going to happen if you can't get to the top. And that was my, I was frightened. We, we all are. Um, in fact, you know, as part of my work with the committee is my specialist subject is uh, patient aftercare because you don't get a lot of counseling. There's not a lot of people that you can turn to to help you. But I set my sights on that date and I thought, well, if I'm going to go, I may as well go in front of 65,000 people, <laughs> you know, uh, in the middle of a sunny day at Hyde Park. I mean, it kind of fitting in some way. And I did it and uh, I couldn't believe I did it, but I did. And it gave me so much confidence. And the crowd was so, everybody was so warm. Everybody was so embracingly happy to see me. And uh, that was it. It was a massive turning point. 
not just in terms of my recovery, but actually really in my life. Um, so I, I, ever, ever since then, I've really felt sort of onwards and upwards. And I've tried to even use my social media, particularly Instagram, to be kind of inspirational for people who are going through a similar experience, you know, to say, don't let it beat your life. You know, you've got to make a decision to be the best you can. You've really got to try and overcome this in, in any way that you possibly can. It's not easy, but, but just keep a positive mindset and it's how, hugely helpful if you're able to do that. And hearing how, in effect, you've rebuilt Bob and, and you've started again, it just makes me remember that fundamentally what you do better than anyone is you bring pleasure and company to people who listen to you talking about new music. In many ways, it's kind of a return to the 1970s because you think about your love for new country. And I think back to people like, I don't know, Neil Young and Graham Parsons and Emmy Lou, who you had on yeah. the show then. We've kind of gone full circle. And fundamentally, this is where your joy is, isn't it? Well, people say that me being into country is unexpected, Nick, and, uh, but it's not when you think about it. So some of the artists that I used to love, I mean, obviously, on the one hand, you've got Chuck Berry and Little Richard, the white artists that I loved in the rock and roll era, people like Buddy Holly, Jerry Lee Lewis, the Every Brothers, Elvis, uh, to uh, Duane Eddy, they all had a country background. They'd all come out of rockabilly or they... They'd come out, you know, you look at the Everly Brothers singles in those early days, Wake Up Little Susie, Bird Dog, All I Had to Do is Dream. They always topped the country charts. Then as you go through the 60s, Bob Dylan recorded Blonde on Blonde in Nashville. In fact, one of the people who play on Blonde on Blonde, Charlie McCoy, was the harmonica player on the Old Grey Whistle Test theme tune. He was part of the Grove Area Code 615. You get to the late 60s and... Uh, uh, Bob Dylan recording with Johnny Cash, Graham Parsons steering the birds towards country rock, and then the Flying Burrito Brothers, that incredible country rock movement of the early 70s that we were supporting massively on Whistle Test. The Eagles, Poco, Pure Perry League, as you say, Neil Young, Harvest recorded in Nashville, um, uh, Crossy Stills National, you know, Little Feet. They all had big, big feet in country. And then, so you jump then to uh, the 90s and you're now looking, when I came back to Radio 1 that was on the overnights, uh, at me playing Steve Earle, Mary Chapin Carpenter, Sean Colvin, um, uh, Guy Clark, a lot of Nancy Griffith, a lot of the Texan songwriters uh, now found their way into my radio programs. And this is where Radio 2 then came in a little later because Leslie Douglas, who was the controller of Radio 2, uh, by the time I went across to Radio 2, she was the deputy controller. They wanted to change the sound of the country show. And they could hear me play people like Lucinda Williams and um, Whiskey Town, Ryan Adams and Caitlin Carey and all these people. And she thought that's the way we want the show to go. So I didn't even realize myself <laughs> that you could draw that straight line. But then Dave Shannon took me to Nashville. I found myself, I mean, it's really hard to even describe, but landing in Nashville was like landing in my second home. And uh, the songwriting community there, the level of the musicianship, the fact that the song is the, the key element, that performance remains really important. If you want to, I mean, in my opinion now, country is the equivalent of rock. You've got bass, drums, lead guitar, 
uh, pedal steel, yes, and, and fiddle or violin, yes. But you, it's performance music. It's still floor to tape, um, as good as. And um, it's organic. The song is still vitally important. It isn't cut and paste. It really, it is, as they say, three chords and the truth. The musicians really care about their fans. And it's a very, very beautiful place to be. I mean, you've got to kind of, I'm not blind to all the politics that are going on in America, particularly in the Southern States right now. And there's, there's absolutely zero possibility of me going anywhere near Jason Aldi, for example, ever. Um, so there, there is that, but I mean, there's that in any walk of life and within country, there are so many great artists who really care about the world around them. They care about their fans and, uh, they're the people that I support. Right, Bob, I think we better draw this to a close. You're coming to the Stables on the 19th of August uh, in conversation with your old friend Martin Joseph. What can we expect? And what can we expect that'll be different to this conversation? Well, Martin and I know each other so well. And um, so it always begins, I go out first. I, I'll introduce Martin. He'll come out and play maybe two songs, certainly a song. And then, and then we just sit down together and we reminisce and we talk through some of his great experiences. I mean, he and I first met at a Mark Cohen concert in 1991. And, um, you know, Martin is a road warrior. He really is. He also uh, has this, this fantastic project called the Let Yourself Trust. He's a force for good in the world, Martin, and I care about him very much indeed. So I think that the affection that we feel for one another and the knowledge that we have about each other's life, we don't plan anything. We just sit down and start to talk and um, we ask the audience to ask us questions if they want to. We Generally what we do is we put some sheets of paper and pens at the front of the stage. So we're, while we're taking the half-time break, uh, people can write out their questions. And then towards the end of the show, we field one or two of those questions. And then Martin plays a couple of songs to round things off. So it's a really beautiful evening. It's very kind, very gentle. and. Um, very warm. Exactly uh, in your image and in your spirit. Saturday the 19th of August, 8 o'clock uh, kickoff for that. Tickets via stables.org. Uh, more information about what you get up to, Bob, where can we find you online and elsewhere? Uh, BobHarris.org, O-R-G, is my website. And um, I'm right across social media, at Whispering Bob. My, my favourite uh, medium is Instagram. That's the one I tend to spend most time on. Uh, but yeah, anywhere on social media, at Whispering Bob. Bob Harris, thank you. Cheers, Nick. Thanks very much. There's Bob Harris, such a warm, wonderful, important presence in our musical lives for so long now. And perhaps that's why I love doing podcasts in general, and this one for the stables in particular, because it enables us to hear at length from people in a way that perhaps you no longer can on radio or television. I'm really grateful to Bob for being so generous with his time for us. You can see his evening with Martin Joseph on the 19th of August at the Stables. Tickets cost £27.50 and can be purchased at stables.org. Check out the website for all the upcoming programme at the Stables and perhaps also have a look at how you can become one of the brilliant volunteers who help the Stables on show nights. They're called Stablemates and it's a great way to get involved with the venue and see some brilliant artists too. Thanks to those of you who've rated and reviewed the podcast on your podcast app. Please do so if you've not already done so. It really is the best way of getting this podcast noticed and listened to by as many people as possible. Also, don't forget to follow this series to get notified of all upcoming episodes. 
Thanks again to Bob and to Sean, and thanks to you for taking the time to listen to this. I'll be back soon with the next episode, but until then, from me, Nick Coffer, and the stables in Milton Keynes, it's goodbye for now. Listener.